It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. I have a special guest with me this week. I, you know, I find myself saying I have a special guest every week, and they all are very special, I think. This guest is from Ohio, my home state. Her name is Rachel Ramirez. She's the founder and director of the Center on Partner-Inflicted Brain Injury, and that's a project of the Ohio Domestic Violence Network. And the center provides statewide, national, and international leadership to raise awareness on the emerging area of brain injury caused by domestic violence. And you have a bigger uh, resume here, but that's the important part that we're going to pick your brain over, so to speak, uh, today, Rachel. And that is the seriousness of brain injury when we're talking domestic violence. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you reaching out to me and wanting to know more about this work. Well, you know, I first was introduced to the idea of domestic violence and different organizations and different methodologies for helping people who have been through that about 25 years ago. And even at that, to- at that point in time, advocates and researchers were saying, you know, uh, strangulation is a huge problem. Strangulation is mm-hmm. huge. But, but mm-hmm. it's only been the last few years that we have understood that strangulation is not just strangulation. It's also brain injury. Can you explain that? Absolutely. So this is just a small taste of my background. Um, I work for the statewide coalition in Ohio. We work with 72 member programs here, and I have been with the coalition for 13 years. I began my career as a domestic violence advocate in a large domestic violence shelter in Florida. So I am not new to domestic violence. Um, It's all I've ever done professionally. It's all I ever plan to do professionally. But it wasn't until um, three years ago that our organization received a grant to look into developing um, kind of best practices and approaches for making domestic violence programs more accessible for survivors who were struggling with mental health or might have experienced a brain injury that we even got into this work. through a close partnership, we had a close partnership with the Ohio State University, who served as our evaluation on the project, and have had the opportunity to do some research around this issue. Um, but one of the things that was so interesting, again, we in domestic violence, we've known strangulation, we've talked about it before, we've always kind of very much viewed it through a lens of it being very dangerous, it being an indicator of lethality. Um, and kind of the, that it can kill you, which it very, very much can very quickly. But I think something that we've realized as a part of this project is recognizing that not only does strangulation cause a brain injury, um, that can have long-term effects on a survivor's life in ways that even me, myself, as a experienced domestic violence professional, had never really recognized or even kind of knew basic information about that. Um, and I think, again, kind of the other piece when we think about kind of the, the first image of a battered woman in this country was a woman who had a black eye. I mean, that's just kind of the classic, like when people think domestic violence, that's what they think. And just had yeah. to put those two pieces together around that person might have had a concussion when they were hit with enough force to cause bruising. And that also could have impacted the brain. So um, it was very kind of, it, you don't have to sit with that for very long to be like, duh, like that makes total sense. But it's a connection that those of us who work in the domestic violence field and provide domestic violence services really haven't made. Um, even in the going on, you know, 40 years of advocacy and services that we've been um, providing to domestic violence victims. So it was very Let's much talk, kind um, of like a, you know, like I mean, like like whoa, how on earth did we manage yeah. to miss this? Yeah, the light bulb moment. Let's talk a little bit about the study because I, I love studies. I'm always uh, talking with researchers. Love studies. Tell us a little bit about how that study went on. Um, how how did it, how were you, how was it carried out? Well, and we were very lucky again that um, one of the for those of you who work in the nonprofit world and 
the grant world and you write these grants. So this is a grant that we wrote that was definitely one of those, like it would be great to get, but we're not planning who we're hiring. Um, it was a funder, the Office of Victims for Victims of Crime um, under the Department of Justice was the funder. Um, and so it was kind of like, we wrote that grant and then kind of went on with our work. And when we found out that we, and one of the, the, the requirements of the grant is we had to have a partner for an evaluation. Um, had a professor, Dr. Juliana Nemeth, who works with Ohio State, who if you are ever interested in talking more about kind of the, 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 the deep dive into the research, I'm sure she'd love to talk to you about that. But um, very much had it planned out as an evaluation. We have never as an organization done extensive work with an IRB or kind of formal research before. But when the grant conditions, when we found out we got the grant, we called up Dr. Nemeth, who we had known for many, many years of community-based work, um, and sat down and looked at the special conditions of the grant, kind of how we to do that. She, you know, started to say, it looks like we're going to be needing to do research around this um, because we're going to be talking to people. We're going to be wanting to create kind of generalizable knowledge for our field. So we ended up going through the IRB, um, the IRB process with um, through the Ohio State University. The program was structured. We had five domestic violence programs that we were partnering with across the state. There were very diverse programs in diverse areas of the state. Um, Ohio is unique in that we have several big cities. We have a lot of rural kind of farmland, kind of the Midwest, and we also have a large Appalachian part of the state. So we picked out member domestic violence programs of our organization that represented that diversity of Ohio. And the first thing that we do is Dr. Nemeth as a professor of public health, going through a public health planning process, was um, taking kind of a public health approach, looking at that, and that always starts with a very good needs assessment. So what we did is we went and we did focus groups with um, the staff at the five different domestic violence programs, separated them out we, we, to kind of administrators and direct service staff. We know that sometimes, depending on your position within an organization, you can have a very different perspective of what knowledge is, what is happening, what services look like. Um, and so we did those groups and did things. We asked lots of questions around, you know, what do you know about brain injury? Um, have you ever had an experience with a survivor who has had a brain injury? How did that go? Um, what does a person with a brain injury look like? Um, talk to me about what some, we think some of your needs are around training, around materials, what that would be. Um, so we did that group. And we also, like I said, it was a project that we were looking at, both brain injury and mental health. So we asked the same questions around mental health and brain injury and have um, written a journal article, which was published in, I believe it's the Journal of Abuse, Aggression, Maltreatment, and Trauma, um, about the results of that focus group. But one of the things that those, those 11 focus groups that we did at the five different agencies, um, and we learned very quickly that there was very little knowledge around brain injury. People didn't know what it might look like they hadn't had a lot of training. Um, they weren't routinely asking about it. Um, and then we went in, and, you know, it was also what was interesting is there was almost talking about that light bulb moment, Heather. Like, in the context of even doing those focus groups with agency staff, like, you know, we asked them, talk to us about an experience of a survivor in shelter who might have had a brain injury, and people couldn't think of any. And, like, 45 minutes into the group, they were like, you remember – that person who had been choked and strangled several times and she was acting, I mean, we could see those connections being made just within the groups. But then we went out and we interviewed 49 survivors at the five different program sites who were accessing services. Um, not exclusively um, domestic violence shelter services, so about 60% of our group um, was in shelter, but also community-based services and support groups, legal advocacy, um, counseling, other types of services. And when we asked about histories of being hit and had or choked and strangled, um, 80, it's one of them was 83 and one of them was 85. I always get them confused. But um, and I think it was 85% of survivors said that they had been hit in the head, with 49% of them saying they'd been hit in the head too many times that they didn't, couldn't even quantify it. They couldn't put a number on it. And we asked, and 83% had been choked, and strangled, choked or strangled, with I think half of them saying, it happened a few times, and 20% of them saying that it had happened too many times to count. So it was just this, and I think, like, it, it was surprising, but not. Um, in, in the same way, like, I mean, it was just, like, to see those numbers, like, just the enormity of it. At the same time, if you ask 
the um, you know your domestic violence advocate and whatever program, we know people have been hit in the head. We know people have been choked and strangled. That's not new. But then it was like putting that together that this is almost universal among domestic violence programs that people have, again, not one experience with head trauma, but multiple extensive serious experiences with head trauma. And then domestic violence staff don't know, and myself included, don't know anything about that um, and aren't bringing that framework to um, our service provision and to kind of understanding what that is. So um, even having been an experienced violence, again, a domestic violence professional and advocate, this has totally shifted my view in thinking about services, how they are, and what they need to look like. And we were very appreciative of the grant to kind of provide us with this opportunity to partner closely with these domestic violence programs to figure out how to address this within services. When you're describing some of these things, I think about my limited direct service work with survivors. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I have talked to so many people, judges especially, who say, well, there's something wrong with her. There's something wrong exactly. with her. And, mm-hmm. as, and what, the way they're saying it, it's like, well, see, he had to do that or he had to get a divorce or whatever because, see, she's, she's flawed. There's something wrong with her. And I have always said, you know, was there something wrong with her before she went through this experience? That's the key question. And I even had one court person say, well, what difference does that make? Mm-hmm. Well, well, you know, and I mean, and I think, again, I think, that, yeah, and I think, you know, and one of the things when talking about how many domestic violence survivors have we worked with who say things like, I just can't think straight, like, I just can't. Mm-hmm figure it out. And I think that what I think is even more important for me and why this has become what I'm hoping, assuming I continue to get this work funded, will be the rest of my career and my contribution to this work is the importance of helping survivors make these connections because survivors for think when they think when they're having problems, we talk about common brain injury symptoms include things like problems with memory, problems focusing, problems concentrating, problems with understanding. When we talk about kind of the executive function frontal lobe area of the brain that controls a lot of our daily life, problems with initiation and motivation. Um, Domestic violence survivors have thought themselves and have been treated as if they're either stupid or crazy. When that's Mm -hmm. what they think about themselves, that's how they're treated when they access help. And I think that what has been amazing part of this pro- progress project is for domestic violence survivors to have information that do you know that when you're hit in the head, it makes it harder to focus and it makes it harder to concentrate. And you are not stupid and you are not crazy. Your head's been hurt and it has consequences when our head is hurt. Just like, for example, and this is, I use this all the time when I'm training, like when your leg, when your leg is broken and you trip, like you don't walk as well. And you have a harder time walking. And nobody's like with a person who's in a cast saying, well, why are they taking so long to get up the stairs? And that's why we build elevators. We create accessible spaces. Is because and we help out people. So if you see somebody who's on crutches and trying to carry a bunch of stuff, like you go help them, right? And we don't yeah. think, what's wrong with that person? Why are they taking so long to get in the, you know, they should just really try harder. And I don't know what the big deal is. And just thinking again about those expectations that we have from system partners and also even within our services. And then you have domestic violence victims who literally are like, you know, I I, I used to be able to, there's stuff I used to be good at that I can't do now. My partner told me I was stupid. Look at me. I can't, like, I'm having problems at my job. I am having these challenges that, that, that maybe he was right. Maybe I am stupid and maybe I am crazy. And when you think about some of the symptoms, again, there's a lot of overlap. There are some very unique symptoms when we think about trauma, some neurological brain injury, but just survivors you know, knowing. 
I'm not the stupid. Mm-hmm. I thought I was stupid. No, you're not stupid. You well, know? you know, Rachel, one of the things that people, the, the universal question that everyone uh, asks when they hear about somebody being in a domestic violence situation, and it's totally asked through ignorance, is, well, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just leave? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've heard that a million times. Nobody ever says, why does he do that? Mm-hmm. But this, when you have this kind of compromise to your brain, mm-hmm. to your thinking, it has to make mm-hmm. it that much more difficult to think, okay, I'll just take a hike. I'll grab the kids and I'll get out of here and, and I'll be able to just sort this out and I'll be able to get a job and I'll be able to be able to be able to be able to. This is a complicating factor for all of that. And again, it is a factor that nobody seems to recognize. The other thing that, that hit me in, in what you're saying is with these symptoms the, of, of the traumatic brain injury, the, some of them are very similar to PTSD. And we already know from previous mm-hmm. studies, from numerous previous studies, that as many as, well, one study came up with 85%. I, I, but we know that at least, at least half to 60% of the women who go through these experiences are likely to have undiagnosed and untreated PTSD. And those, um, uh, so well, you're looking at, at people who are not only have a, a potential for brain injury, but you, they pro- have a high potential for PTSD that's not being treated or recognized. My goodness, I'm surprised that any of them can function at all. And then we expect them to go to a court and say, you know, defend themselves against a, a man who's accusing them of being bad to the kids and that's why he should have the kids. Or, I mean, it's just boggling. It boggles the mind what some of these women have to go through. Well, and I think that, you know, and again, one of the things I've also gotten very well connected in Ohio um, in kind of the brain injury world, which I didn't know that there was a brain injury world before this, um, and thinking about brain injury treatment, and I think and kind of what does that look like, and I think as uninformed as we have been about possible brain injury in domestic violence, I think that the brain injury world has very much evolved the knowledge that they have around brain injury, the impact of brain injury comes from very, very different places. And the vast majority of our knowledge that we have around brain injury comes from a couple of sources, which include the military um, and sports, are really, and accidents. So we think about kind of, um, kind of one-time big brain injuries where someone has a pretty severe car accident, um, kind of looking like that, or there's obviously been a lot of work around the NFL and concussions with those repetitive injuries. Um, and then thinking about, but there's, there's, there's almost nothing, literally, except for the, the possible repetitive hits to the head. A domestic violence victim who, who accesses domestic violence services and an NFL player have almost zero in common. I mean, it's just like the total opposite end of the spectrum. And, I mean, even... The, the, the information that we have just about brain injury and women and the way that it affects people of the female sex with all NFL players being male and 90% of the military being male, um, just even kind of biologically based differences in experiences with brain injury um, is something that is just very, very new. What we know from domestic violence, in addition to kind of so, you know, trying to bring brain injury into the domestic violence world and then trying to bring domestic violence into the brain injury world, um, strangulation is one of those acts of violence that is not totally, um, but close to uniquely domestic violence. It happens some in sexual assault, but even in just like general, I don't say general, I don't know if general is the right word, but like when people get into fights, like strangers get into fights, they don't strangle each other. Um, that's just not something that happens very often outside of our world. But it's so big inside of our world um, that that's something if you are a traumatic brain injury researcher who has spent all, you know, your last 10 years researching sports concussions and you're moving over to domestic violence because we've realized kind of how big of a population this could be like you wouldn't even think strangulation and again a lot of our strangulation even our work and our advocacy around strangulation within domestic violence doesn't talk about traumatic brain injury 
Um, so, you know, another question, so I know that you had asked a little bit more about kind of the research. So when I talked a little bit about kind of our first run with our needs assessment, um, at the end of our product, we actually went back and did out outcome evaluations and asked a lot better questions um, and went over, again, to the same process with focus groups with, with, with um, staff. Um, talking about some of the tools and kind of the approach that we developed called CARE to kind of um, help guide advocates into how to address this. But one of, you know, we also asked much better questions. We interviewed survivors again. You know, one of the questions that we asked about was, you know, a concurrent when people are hit in the head and strangled, like in the same violent incident. And of the, I think it was 47, our second round of interviews that we we interviewed of all the people that had said they had been strangled, like only one of them hadn't had prior experience with head trauma. So somebody who experienced a strangulation almost certainly has experienced events that could cause a traumatic brain injury, um, you know, possibly in that same incident, but has a history of that. So again, it is kind of trying to also help us reconceptualize our work and our advocacy around strangulation is strangulation, yes, it is something that kills, that can kill you. It is something that can kill you quickly. It is absolutely a lethality risk factor and an indicator that a, a, an abuser is particularly dangerous. But it can also, like, impact your balance. Like, who would have thought that? Like, people have, like, these physical problems, like things like balance. Things like when people have brain injuries, they're more prone to seizures. That is not common knowledge. Um, and helping survivors understand, again, those longer-term challenges that could be, like, first of all, like have a reason and a source. So, again, like you don't walk as well when your leg's broken because your leg's broken. Not because something's wrong with you, not because you're a failure, but because your leg was broken. And, of course, you don't walk as well. When your brain's been hurt, your mm -hmm. brain doesn't work as well. And, of course, it doesn't work as well, and we shouldn't expect it to work as well. Um, you know, I think that the other real passion about this for me has also come from brain injury. We have so much more that we need to learn about brain injury. This is, again, where kind of the development of this term working on came from. But we also know that brain injury, if it's identified, is treatable. Um, many of us know people, stroke, stroke is an example of a brain injury. Many of us know people or have seen in the news, people can have strokes and can not walk or not be able to talk. And with the proper rehabilitation and support can do that stuff again. You know, like it can get better, um, but it can't get treated if it doesn't get identified. Um, and so many of the identification protocols and processes that we've developed out of the brain injury world come from kind of bystander interventions where we've trained coaches and teachers and parents to recognize the signs of a concussion and developed. The NFL has a pretty extensive and pretty um, sophisticated protocol around kind of those flows that involve heads in the NFL. But again, that's all related on, that's all based on like somebody else is there watching stops what's going on, it gets immediately identified, and then we're able to put in place kind of the support that that person needs for their brain to fully heal. This is not a violent act that's perpetrated by somebody intentionally in private where, like, you just got to get up the next morning and keep on living your life, you know? Um, so I think it really is. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, I think that's the other thing. And guess what? I have three children. You think, so it would be like, let's just say that I could, that I had access, that I had been recently strangled or hurt in the head, that I had access to, if I, that I could, like that my partner would prevent me from going to get medical care. And I had a car and I had insurance and I could get there. You think I'm leaving my children at home with somebody who just made me pass out because they strangled me? No. Exactly. So, exactly. again, it's just when we think about even the identification piece, it just is going to require a totally different framework than brain injury has ever seen. Um, so that is really one of my um, kind of pushing, like there needs to be a very deep understanding of those 
dynamics of domestic violence and all of the other things that come along with that. And I think, you know, as you were talking about earlier, Heather, the overlap of you have ongoing psychological trauma and traumatic stress plus a neurological insult. And that's not the case in most of these other, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that's not what an NFL football game looks like. That's not what that experience is. It doesn't mean it's, it's not better or worse. It's just not the same thing. So we can't take, oh, well, the NFL, you know, does this. So this is what we need to do with domestic violence victims. And, again, when you look at some of those protocols where, you know, kind of the brain injury, concussion recovery, all of those protocols where, I mean, the very first, the very first step, and it literally says this, is avoid stress and rest. <laughs> uh-huh. I know, and that's what people yeah. do. Like, it's funny. Right? Like, like, we can't do that. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, and that's like, I mean, that's literally what you're supposed to avoid stress. Like, that is not realistic for us. So what does that need to look like? And what does this need to look like in the context of domestic violence? And Lord willing, I'm going to spend the rest of my career trying to figure this out with Ohio State. Well, that's wonderful. You know, when when we're talking about all this and the co-occurring uh, uh, traumas and uh, problems, and, you know, it just makes so much sense. I, I do a little bit of uh, advocacy work for uh, women in courts, and I had I, – I've just been gobsmacked. Um, I, I – most of these women have uh, ADA approved or recognized conditions, and yet mm-hmm. they are not being seen as anybody who needs any special help. And so when I get asked, when I'm, um, you know, one of the things that I do is, uh, you know, I will be an advocate for those women and see if I can get special accommodations. And I'm happy to say that I've been pretty successful with it so far. But one of the women that I had, was in Virginia, a Virginia court, just a miserable experience. Her children had been taken away. She was, and, uh, you know, I mean, just the worst. And she was having problems with the courts. She was not understanding and she was getting into trouble because they were saying she was not being compliant. And I mm-hmm. talked with their ADA representative who's, and I said, well, what paperwork are you giving her? Well, she gets the judge's uh, order. I said, but you not a, you are not allowing her to record the actual proceedings. You are not providing a record <laughs> of the proceedings or recording or even a transcript of the proceedings. And you tell her that if she wants transcript, she has to hire it, which is thousands of dollars. You're giving her a two-page court order, and you're expecting her to remember and understand what she heard in the court. Of course she's not going to do that. So that was the advocacy work I did for her. And I, I, like I said, I, I pat myself on the back that I was uh, somewhat successful at that. But when I was doing the call arounds, and this is the real point of the story, when I was doing the call arounds, even victim services, I called the court and all of them, all of them referred to her as being crazy. She's crazy. Uh-huh. I mean, even in uh-huh. the court, I said, hi, I'm calling for so-and-so and, and, in the court, where you would expect a certain level of objectivity, at least training to appear objective from the personnel, mm-hmm. they didn't know me from I was Adam. I'm stuff you don't tell Adam. people, right? You know what I mean? Like exactly. you don't tell people. You don't actually tell somebody that. You can think that, but you don't tell them that. You know? Exactly. And and I called, identified myself, and said I was called representing so and so, and they went, "Oh, she is crazier than a bed bug." And I mm-hmm. thought, are you kidding me? You don't know me from Adam, and you're saying this about this woman. And mm-hmm. I was able, the woman actually did have documented brain injury. And uh-huh. so I was able to say, this woman has a physical condition. She is not crazy. You know, mm-hmm. and she has a condition that is, uh, uh, you know, fits under the ADA's definition of disability. So you mm-hmm. need to treat her not as the crazy lady, but as a woman who is disabled and needs your assistance and is, in fact, required to get your assistance under the ADA. And it uh-huh. really made a bit of a difference. Yeah. I can, and as I mean, you're talking about this, I'm envisioning, you know, court because courts especially, I mean, oh, my gosh, you know, I mean, courts are just a horrible situation for women with children right now who are going through this kind of stuff. 
And they're being mm-hmm. disrespected. They're being disregarded. They're being judged as being less than. And mm-hmm. this makes so much sense. You know, mm-hmm. they're not crazy, thank you. They have been damaged by this experience. Come on, people, put on uh-huh. your big girl pants and recognize them as somebody who needs assistance. Mm-hmm. Not as somebody who brought on their own problems because they're crazy. I, I, I just, you know, mm-hmm. give me a soapbox. I, you know, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to advocate. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. well, and I mean, I think again, and one of the things, and I mean, we can unpack this in lots of different ways. But when we were going up and doing a kind of our follow up with the five programs and asking about how their services had changed, a part of our, because I'll, I'll talk real briefly. So I was to about kind of the, the, the intervention piece, um, which was, you know, developed, which is around, it's really a framework called CARE. And CARE is an acronym which stands for Connecting, Acknowledging, Responding, and Evaluating. Um, and kind of what we did is, you know, we asked with the groups kind of thinking about the importance of beginning by developing real relationships with survivors and being able to get to know survivors, getting out of your office, not expecting survivors to come to you, going out to talk to them, talking to them about other things that aren't just domestic violence. We all have very full lives. Um, and then acknowledging, and that really being our role as kind of the domestic violence service providers, we need to bring up some of this stuff that's hard to talk about that people just, not even hard to talk about, I think in the brain injury, where like people just don't even have any idea. Um, and us kind of acknowledging the ways in which people's heads can be hurt and the ways in which domestic violence impacts your mental health. And we have very, very much come to believe, and some of our research is showing that when, when, when we're not at least putting this on the table, and we're not asking any programs to diagnose brain injury. Actually, all of we've developed several different advocacy materials, including a screening card. These are all available on our website at odvn.org. They're free to download. You can use them. Um, we have, you know, a card that just talks about some of the things that can happen when your head has been hurt. We actually don't use the term brain injury anywhere um, because the, the advocates when doing our original needs assessment said, like, that's really scary. Um, it's a scary term. We're also not medical professionals. Like, I don't diagnose a brain injury. But thinking about that educational piece of helping people understand that when your head's hurt, do you know it could impact your you physically? It could impact your thought process. What it is that that look like? We have a couple of other longer booklets that were helpful um, that provided, again, DV-specific, written very, thinking about very kind of, I don't want to say low literacy level, but we know, you know, one of the things that brain injury is very common, sort of a brain injury, is challenges with attention, comprehension, and understanding. So we have to think about how we're writing things that we want people to read. And we can't assume that people are going to remember them. But then it's providing some of this information, acknowledging this stuff, then responding. So if somebody is telling us, and, you know, we're, 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 we know them and we're observing, or they're telling us that they're having problems with motivation or with comprehension or with memory, then we're responding and we're doing things differently. Um, we're providing reminders in different ways. We're making meetings shorter. We had one program, what they started doing is one of the things that, again, once they built this connection with a survivor, they were able to, um, one of the things the survivor shared with them is most of us, for those of you who have never been in a DV shelter, like we don't have like uniforms. Um, we usually wear the same clothes most of the people there who are, you know, are wearing. And this, you know, poor survivor, like didn't know who was staff and who was not staff when they needed. So they started like just, they got staff name tags. I mean, we're not talking about like, building a new shelter here. And one of the things they started doing their practice when they would meet with survivors, they would always introduce themselves again. They'd say, I'm Rachel, we talked yesterday, this is what we talked about. So it really is that response is thinking about how are we providing our services differently? One of the things that can be most helpful when we talk about intervening and kind of that recovery from brain injury is people need to get some good sleep. So how are we helping people sleep? And we have programs that have done things like provide face masks, like eye masks, I'm sorry, eye masks, um, or earplugs. Or we've had programs that have asked people, you know, do you go to bed later or go to bed earlier? And if people need to share rooms, try to put, like, the earlier people together. It's not going to be perfect. But just make those attempts. So that's kind of the whole response. And then evaluating is how we're connecting 
we're going back to survivors and a part of advocacy is figuring out, I know you talked, Heather, about kind of working with accommodations and, and those kind of things. Are the accommodations working? And if they're not, that's okay. And do they, like, what's working well? What's not working well? What do we need to do different? What has changed? So it's not all about, like, well, I gave you the referral number, and that's that. Um, and that being that yeah. framework. And what, when we went up and we followed up with programs and kind of asked these five programs we had been working with intensely over three years, like, what had changed? This is totally coming back to the beginning of this, this, this story. Talking about what they said is it was really their viewpoint and their perspective of survivors. And as you were talking about, that crazy lady became that lady that might have been hit or hurt in the head. And I don't know whether it's good or bad that that just changes how we work with people because, of course, if you have been physically assaulted and controlled and threatened and isolated, like, it seems like that should be able to affect you. Like, it should, like that should be enough. For people to be like, yeah, domestic violence messes you up. If you are any, like any of us had been in that situation, it would mess us up some. But it really made them think differently about, you know, the survivor that's never showing up for appointments. And we used to jump to the conclusion that, well, she's not engaged and she doesn't care. And, you know, she doesn't care for her safety and she's not motivated. It could be like, maybe she forgets stuff. Or maybe like, and so yeah. maybe we need to be reminding her differently. Or maybe, like, motivation. Again, like, getting things started, that is a brain function. Being able to be like, yeah. okay, where do I start today? And how do I tackle so this problem? So that is an advanced brain function. Perceiving the person as having some sort of character flaw. Uh -huh. Perceiving that person as battling under a physical disability that isn't particularly yeah. visible to you. That they yeah. have been injured. Yeah. And again, and I think that what I think, you know, domestic violence survivors, when we went up and we talked directly to survivors, I mean, and I think, again, what has been the most important part of this project for me has been that there are survivors who were like, guess what? I am not stupid. I am not crazy. And there are things that mm -hmm. I can do. And it is okay that I'm like this. And it is okay for me to get help for this. And it is okay for me to share this. And I don't need to pretend anymore. Like I'm, and we've all had that experience when we're working with a survivor who we're like, she's not understanding anything that we're saying, but she's telling you she is. You know, I don't yeah. need to do that anymore. And I'm not stupid. And this program can help me. And there are things we can work on together that can help me have a better quality of life. And it can be things as simple. I mean, I've worked with, uh, you know, many survivors, like not many, actually only a very few that have had their brain injury kind of identified, often after years and years and after terrible, terrible things that have happened, um, you know, in their attempt to kind of cope with some of those things. But, you know, I have a survivor who, I mean, she's got an app that she has on her phone that every single morning it says, get up, brush your teeth, put on your clothes, you know, like just, and, and, and she can do all of that stuff. And that really helps her. And she knows ways to, she knows that she does things that are important in the morning because our brains are often fresher in the morning. Many of us, that's true, even if we don't have brain injuries. So if she ever has important information, like people's brains get tired, just like people's, um, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like people's brains get tired. Yeah. So if you have important, scheduling that kind of stuff for the morning, you know, doing those kind of things is she knows that, you know, and one of the things that she showed was she became very sensitive to noise. And depending on how your head is hurt and where your head is hurt, which part of your brain is impacted, we see kind of the difference in the variety of brain injuries. Again, among people who have strokes, some people are fine with language. Other people have problems with physical. I mean, it just depends on our brain is very, very complicated, and brain injuries are so unique. But, you know, one of her things was when she was in loud places, it was just um, would almost put her in bed. And, again, she thought she was nuts. She really did. She's like, I just can't, like, go out anymore because everything bothers me, and I don't know what's wrong. So, again, then you start to self-isolate. Then you start to drink. You know what I mean? But now, like, she knows that, and sometimes she still does go out on Friday. But she goes out on Friday. She um, goes out on Friday. She knows it's going to bother her. Um, you know what I mean? Like, 
and she's prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes yeah. sense. So it's just a very different yeah. so, um, perspective. Well, and that brings me to the topic of it sounds like you uh, she's educated about her situation and she's learning how, what she needs to do to function well despite that. And whenever we have research such as, as this study, the Ohio University study, a large part of the follow-up to that study is educating people. Mm-hmm. What kind of programs are being done to not necessarily work with survivors, but to educate the advocates, to educate people who encounter or work with domestic violence victims? Uh, what what kind of efforts uh, have our, our follow-up to this study uh, when it comes to educating folks? Well, and I, we have done kind of extensive, I, I actually should have been in Chicago at a national conference this week presenting on some of this work and some of this research um, at the Futures Without Violence um, Biannual Healthcare Conference. Um, COVID has put a, put a um, I don't know what the, like a, has totally messed up my training and education plan um, in the meantime, though I have done, I mean, one of the things that we have been doing is we have done several webinars um, on this issue, particularly for, I mean, there's lots of different training that needs to happen among different professionals. Um, this intervention and this this um, this this kind of framework was developed specifically for domestic violence programs, and that and that was just kind of the the scope of the grant was really looking internally at our system. Um, but I was supposed to next week. I was supposed to be out in um, Delaware training at their um, annual conference for domestic violence advocates. I had a training in Texas that was in a couple of weeks. So um, I am kind of re working some of this stuff into webinar form formats. Actually, we did, I did a webinar with Peters Out Violence last, um, it was on the 21st of April, I think, and we had it closed out. There was over a 1,000 people on it, and it closed out in like two minutes, and we never, I just, I just the, it was, the response was overwhelming. So I've been able to do some of the web-based training, and in, in, in addition, um, I think part of the education, or thank you so much for inviting me on a show like this, um, to do this kind of this this kind of outreach, and we are continuing our academic work, and have a couple of other journal articles under review in the academic space. Um, we've been doing different trainings around Ohio for domestic violence programs, but hopefully, um, like I said, I had six out of state trips to train on this that were canceled in the last couple of months due to the COVID crisis. But we're not going to be at home forever. Um, and we're kind of adapting and adjusting like everybody else is around this and providing what we can um, virtually and writing articles and blog posts for different places and also developing, um, I'm in the process of working on um, kind of a static online learning course um, that will be available through ODV and within the next couple of months that it will be specifically aimed at domestic violence programs um, we know everybody in the world needs to be trained on this, but we are um, just kind of in a part of it is that the role of my organization where I work is very specific around um, thinking about um, DD program capacity building. So um, you have to start somewhere. And I think, again, what we know is just that um, how high that, um, that the prevalence is among people seeking services. We're hoping to continue to do that. And again, have had lots of collaborations. There's a, a, a actually a, it's called a, the Partner Inflicted Brain Injury Task Force with Pink Concussions, which is an organization that looks concussions and brain injuries in women. And we have a monthly call slash webinar that features different individuals who are working at this intersection. Um, that's the last Tuesday of every month. Um, if you go to Pink Concussions on their website, they have it's about the um, Partner Inflicted Brain Injury Task Force. All of their calls are recorded there. So I think that the other thing we've had um, collaborations with people from Canada. Um, I know the people who are doing brain injury work in Australia who have done some pretty innovative work. Um, so we are, like I said, like everybody else, kind of adjusting to what this looks like in a world where um, I can't be at conferences and things like that in the meantime, but um, continuing to try to spread spread this in different ways, including through um, through this um, this forum. So I would thank you again very much for inviting me to be here. Um, and again, hope to keep at it and can't wait to get back into a front of a group of people for many, many reasons. And I'm sure many of us are um, needing to think that 
um, there will be an other side to this someday. Yes. Um, hopefully uh-huh. sooner rather than it later. Yeah. But I will be there when we're finally allowed <laughs> to do this stuff again. I will be there. Yeah. Well, that's uh, talking about training the advocates. And But w- what uh, efforts are there going on to train the general population, to just make this part of the narrative when people talk well, about or uh, address the issue of domestic violence? Are you, are you well, getting popular think, press? Like, you... Well, and, and, and I am hoping, and one of the things that we are actually trying to do is to think about um, – Getting in, we've had some conversations with some people who are working with the NFL um, and thinking about they've really taken a leadership on. I mean, the NFL has by far the most kind of advanced response to concussion and brain injury um, piece that we have um, anybody that has uh, kind of of any industry. Um, But I do think that a part of that is I really do think that the solution to this is very much going to be kind of the public health general average person makes the connection between domestic violence and that it can impact your brain. Um, And that's really what I need. I don't know, like, and that's what kind of, and I think that again, this work has kind of evolved so fast that, um, that thinking about what a kind of a public awareness campaign is and would look like for this. And I think mainly because, kind of some of the strategies around identification that we've come up with in other settings and in other parts, um, again, mostly focused on observers and bystanders really aren't applicable. Um, we have to eventually get to the point where somebody who is in an abusive relationship and is hurt in the head is going to be like, oh, my gosh, that could have hurt my brain. You know what I mean? Like, we don't have anybody else. We don't have anybody else. So I think that that's, I mean, I'm still – that, you know, the, again, the world has kind of taken a, I don't even know, 367 or 20, I don't even know what turn the last couple of months have been, kind of an unprecedented turn. But I think that that's very much kind of, I think that it's been really important. Again, our research partnership with Ohio State University and getting that out in the academic world um, and kind of, again, working with, um, we, don't, we, don't, we have so little information about this, um, talking about some of the general population surveys that the CDC does who don't, you know, I mean, we just haven't, we haven't asked about hits to the head. Um, We ask about different types of violence. We don't ask about that location. So we've been um, kind of trying, trying to insert ourselves in several different spaces around that. So I wish I had an answer for you um, about how we're going to kind of, get kind of introduces them to the common knowledge of people. But I think that, I mean, that's very much has been a focus of, of this work is knowing that that needs to be a part of this, but also a part of that being like those um, systems that regularly work with and serve domestic violence victims need to have some basic understanding of this. Um, And that again is hopefully where some of the training that I've been doing. um, And that's really what I spent most of my career at ODV and doing pretty extensive training um, and some of the online um, training that we're hoping to develop that people can just access from anywhere. So at least within systems that regularly work with domestic violence um, victims, that this becomes a part of just like you're, like you learn about the power and control wheel when you start DV and you learn a little bit about brain injury too. Um, so I think that, um, Again, a lot of it is going to depend on I'm continuing to write lots of grants to be able to continue to fund this work um, and and that kind of stuff too. But um, I think the other thing is you've got to, I feel there's a, there's a piece of this whole, like this thing is so big, it can be very easy to just get overwhelmed. And it's just like, well, you've got to start somewhere and you've got to start with what you can do. Um, and exactly. I think that, well, you know what I mean? So I think that that, some of the direct service providers training. Well, again, continuing to have those. I, I, I work with people from across the country. And again, I have um, Ohio State and myself, we have close conversations with people in Australia. We're having close conversations with people in Canada. There's a small group of researchers and practitioners that are working on this, but an incredibly passionate and incredibly um, well-connected. That's a good thing about, like, when nobody knows about anything and there's a very few people, um, then you can talk a lot. 
Um, so mm-hmm. I think that we're really um, hoping to continue. Um, and, and, and again, all of the trainings that I've done, hardly anybody has ever thought about this before, but like 10 minutes in, they're like, oh yeah, this is a thing. It's not a hard sell. You know what I mean? Like it just, it makes so much sense um, to so many people. Um, and, you know, I've just had incredible follow-up kind of after this was done. And again, the tools that we've created um, that are available on our website are very practical, very hands-on. Um, we've got a kind of a, an identification tool that has um, some different questions that can be asked that can really help advocates identify what some struggles are and what possible accommodations can be. So I think that the other thing is we were really wanting to m- make this simple and make this doable so people would be able to um, to kind of start doing this work. We very much don't think you don't need to go to some two-day training to be certified in brain injury to provide some education about, like, when you're hitting hurt in the head, it does things to your brain. You know what I mean? Yeah. And here are some of those things. Well, that and be logical, you know. You know that, what I mean? That should be. Yeah. Should, it, yeah. Yeah. Totally well, makes listen, sense. Um, you know what I mean? I'm, yep. I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, wow, we've talked for almost an hour and I still have a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. One is that um, people being people, whether they're survivors of domestic violence or victims of domestic violence or not, uh, a certain number of people have some regular mental health um, issues. Mm-hmm. When you have a person who has a, a prior mental health issue, or a co-concurring mental health issue, does that change uh, for the advocates? Does it, how does that change for the people who are working uh, with this victim? And I think that when we talk about, I mean, and again, that, that um, intersection between trauma, mental health, um, now brain injury is so complex and nuanced and so complicated, um, that I think that one of the things that we've really tried to use as a framework for helping advocates understand their job is that um, it's less about, well, is this person having whatever struggles or challenges that they're having? Is it due to trauma? Is it due to mental illness? Is it due to brain injury? Like that might not be the right question, but again, it's using this framework around they're having trouble with something and let's help figure out what could be some solutions so that they are more able to access our services. And of course people have trouble with things because domestic violence is really terrible, right? Um, And so again, this framework, this care, connecting, acknowledging, responding, and evaluating is very much focused on identifying what are those, either those behaviors or those situations and how are we a, anticipating that certain things could be challenging, like we should really be thinking about, um, you know, talk about, um, I know Heather, you talk about your experience with court, like our paperwork. Like what does we know people who come to us have experienced trauma and probably had mental health struggles and many of them have brain injuries. But like that, all of that stuff impacts attention, concentration, kind of relationships, ability to get along with people. So I think a lot of this is kind of resetting. And I think, I mean, kind of our expectations, that's what I thought, talk a lot about um, in the training that I do. Like, what are our expectations we have of survivors um, just when they come in through our doors and whatever services we're trying to provide? And are those realistic and do those make sense? Um, and again, when you talk about court processes, you talk about like we just assume people are going to remember all their court dates and they're going to show up and they're going to know how to find the court and that their stories are going to be linear and logical and make sense. And if they don't make sense, we go to all of these other different bad places about who these people are. Um, but mm-hmm. really, again, thinking about it from that different framework that and that really being our responsibility and yes there are people who are again so clinicians working with individuals with mental illness that's kind of a different game but from an advocate's perspective if somebody is having a challenge in our program let's try to help pinpoint what that challenge is and think about how we can provide services differently so that's less of a challenge Mm -hmm. and that really being our responsibility as an agency, um, that it's not that people have to have a certain knowledge base or people need to be able to do certain things 
in order to access our services is we have to make our services accessible with people's limitations. Like that's our job. It's our job. Yeah. If our services aren't working, it's not because something is wrong with them. It's because something's wrong with how we're providing our service. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's bigger than that. But, um, mm-hmm. and again, as we're learning more, and, you know, sometimes I, I get a little conflicted about this because, you know, again, with this whole new brain injury stuff, I feel like, like there's a part of it is like, oh, like, yeah, like now people have a real reason why our services are hard. Like the trauma of domestic <laughs> violence is real enough of a reason. Like, yes, you know what exactly. I mean? Like, one of the things that I was recently reading was the, a, a study that was done about the worthy victim. In other mm-hmm. words, that when we, as bystanders or as people who work with other people, we have an image of the worthy victim, person mm-hmm. who listens to our advice, the person who takes our recommendations, the person who is compliant, the person who is, uh, that's who we perceive as the worthy victim, whether we're professionally uh, working with them or just socially uh, seeing them. And we are very tied in. We as, as people, human beings, are very tied into the worthy victim. And when we get a victim who is not compliant, who is not grateful, who does not follow the rules, who does not, we tend to blame the victim even more. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it seemed to me this, this study would really, really help us make some headway in that whole concept of the worthy victim at, as being the one that deserves our help as opposed to the unworthy victim. We got like just a couple minutes left. And whenever there's a study like this, whenever I see a study like this, my next question is, what's the next study? What questions did this bring up that need to be answered as well? And in just a minute or two, can, can you tell me what that might be? What, what's down the road? Is there going to be another study? Is there going to be a follow-up? And if so, what will it focus on? Well, I think that there's, like, what I would tell you, what has risen to the top of my head very quickly, coming from having done research but not being a researcher. So thinking really much about kind of the hands-on tangible in the practice world, what are some of the questions that we need answers to that will help us provide better services? And really, I mean, honestly, like, the bottom line is help improve the quality of life of survivors of domestic violence is really what it is. But I think, again, it's that intersection and that understanding of the interplay between ongoing psychological traumatic stress combined with neurological trauma. And when somebody's brain is physically hurt, and we know, and we've done lots of work, those of us have been in this work and have done trauma-informed care forever, we know, like, just like, and I don't know if regular traumatic stress makes sense, but like, when we are living in constant stress, like that, we have physiological effects. It affects our body. It affects our emotion. It affects our brain. It affects our thought process. But then when we combine that with neurological insults, like pieces of our brain have been hurt or cells in our brain have died because of violence, what does that look like and what does that mean for um, kind of recovery when we think about, you know, we talk about like trauma-informed kind of behavioral therapy, which is one of the kind of like clinical best practices for um, kind of best pra- evidence-based, what, you know, kind of clinical responses to people who have experienced trauma. Like cognitive-based therapy assumes that your cognitive functions are intact, that they mm-hmm. could be messed up because of trauma, but like you can be hit in the head and like you don't have you don't have a short term memory anymore. You're not gonna have a short term memory. Like you're not gonna get that back. Sometimes with head trauma, that's how it looks. So I think it really is for me that co occurrence um, and overlapping and ongoing traumatic stress and how that impacts our bodies, brains. Um, emotions and thinking combined with neurological trauma, what that means for healing, what that means, like what are those, um, like what are realistic, implementable, they have this whole, like, again, there's this return to learn protocol and return to sports protocol that have all of these different steps. I don't think that that is what we need or what's realistic in domestic violence. I don't think it's always an adaptation of existing protocols and measures and best practices because our situation is so different. But I think having a better understanding of kind of what does that 
healing need to look like and how do we how does that intersection of psychological trauma neurological trauma play out in the brain in women and then what how do we best um put the pieces back together well and i think it's a good point every time we do one of these studies we get another little piece of information that can help and help us understand help mm-hmm. help us the survivors survive but also help us understand what's going on. Rachel, mm-hmm. thank you so much. I wish we had another hour to talk, but we don't. This is how we learn. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for sharing the study. I can't wait to see the next one. Stay in touch, please. Oh, we'll, have an update we'll let you know. And thanks so much for reaching out. I hope you have a great weekend. Okay, you too. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.